I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Helen Crisp, regional ecologist, and Ali Ross, wildlife ecologist from the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. Welcome. G'day. Thanks, Thanks for having guys. us. Thank you guys for coming. And we've been trying to get you guys for ages. Um, that sounded like a big dig, didn't it? But it wasn't. Uh, I know we're all very busy, but um, we always talk about the AWC on the show and we love what you do. So it'd be great to hear you guys talk about it instead of hearing us talk about it. So thanks for coming. So for those that don't know, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, what are they all about? Yes, yeah, so Australian Wildlife Conservancy, we're an independent, not-for-profit organisation. Um, we actually have our head office in Perth. Um, that's sort of where the AWC story began. But we've also got offices in Sydney and Melbourne and actually overseas as well in New York and also London. So it's, um, it's amazing. Yeah. And AWC, last year we celebrated 30 years of effective conservation, so a really amazing milestone. And, yeah, we are all about conservation and our mission. It sounds pretty simple, um, but our mission is the effective conservation of all Australian animals and the habitats in which they live. So not a small task, but it's certainly ambitious. Task. I love how you... I love how you sum that down to a mission. It's often you get lost in all the different things that you do, um, and that's a, that's a good way to sum that up. Yep. Why do you have offices overseas? So because we're a not-for-profit, we can only do what we do because of our supporters, um, and actually a lot of support comes to us from overseas. So in places like yeah, UK is massive, US as well. Obviously, we've got amazing supporters as well in Australia, um, but We've got so much support overseas that it warranted having staff and an office over there as well. So it's amazing. Wow, yeah. that's pretty huge, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most of your properties are fenced off with all the feral animals like cats and foxes, big issue in Australia, we all know. Yeah. And you're protecting the habitats, so they're areas of generally significant habitat, and then you're putting back the mammals, birds, reptiles that were in that area and and then being ecologists, you then study them and manage them, and that's pretty much what you guys do. Is that in a nutshell? Am I yes. in the right page here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in terms of what we do, so um, I guess there's four key ways that we try to achieve that mission every day. So one of those is exactly as you said. So we establish sanctuaries um, across all of Australia, and some of those sanctuaries are owned and managed by AWC, but others are actually established through partnerships. So the partnerships can be with government. Um, so we've got places in New South Wales like Mallee Cliffs and Pilliga, which we've established in partnership with the New South Wales government. Um, traditional owners and Indigenous partnerships are also really important, particularly up in the Kimberley region. Um, and we've also partnered with um, private landholders and uh, community organisations, so Kangaroo Wild and Land for Wildlife, for instance. So, you know, and partnerships is where things are heading. You know, you can't do this sort of stuff independently. Um, working with others to get these great conservation outcomes is so important. So that's sort of one way that we do things, so setting up the sanctuaries. Not every property has um, the fences on there. There's a lot of properties that don't. All up, we have 31 properties across Australia now that we work in partnership or own and manage, and nine of those are, I guess, classed as safe havens. So they've got 
offence on there where reintroductions can occur. So there's a huge suite of properties that don't have fences. Another way that we try to meet our mission is through education and engagement, so doing stuff like this and telling people what we do. And then another way is the research and the monitoring, like what you talked about, Adrian. You know, one of the, the great things that we're able to do is, yeah, monitor what we're doing, uh, look at the results, look at the outcomes, and then that all feeds back into actually if we're achieving our mission. Because when you talk about a fenced area, it's like an island, isn't it? So yep. you've got to manage carnivores versus herbivores versus... Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And as soon as you have a fence in the landscape, um, you know, we describe it as a key conservation intervention. You know, we're intervening to try and improve the success, particularly of our small to medium mammals. So places like Yukamara, which is where Ali works, um, we have a fence, we've reintroduced four mammals there, and there's other properties around Australia where we're doing similar things. And part of that translocation process is, yeah, certainly monitoring and researching how those species are interacting with species that are already there, um, how those species are interacting with um, vegetation communities, soils, all that sort of stuff. But Ali can tell you more about that one. So four species of mammal that have been put back into Yukimara? That's correct. And we also have um, brush-tailed possums, the, the common brush-tailed possum there, which uh, lived there before um, we put the fence up, but we've supplemented them as well. So they, they we brought more of them in um, to supplement the population we already have. So five species that we've five mammal species that we've uh, introduced into the into the landscape. That fascinates people, doesn't it? The brush-tailed possum one. Like we all know, bilbies are endangered, but you know people that live in cities. Mm. They're, they're a pain. They're a pest. Yeah, they cost us money with pest control people to get them out the roof to put them 10 metres away okay. for them to climb back in. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I bet they don't get many calls, you know, for I've got this bilby, you yeah. get in my garden, there's everything you can do. But, you know, it's funny, isn't it, when you get out of the suburbs, those things. They're actually in big trouble out they're there. They're in trouble out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny getting volunteers coming in and they've just spent, you know, the last few years trying to get possums out of their property and then they come to help us conserve them on our property. It's a good <laughs> it's a good introduction to the landscape. So besides the brush-tailed possum, there's two species of betong, the burrowing betong and, and the brush-tailed betong. Brush-tail betong. That's right. And we've also got numbats and bilbies, which is a good, <laughs> a good uh, broad situation, but we'd like um, maybe some, some fewer grazers in the future would be nice. So less herbivores? Uh, keep the herb- herbivores we've got, but I would really like to see um, maybe some some insectivores or something on the property in the future. We have some natives that occur there already. Um, it'd be really cool if we see more of them um, in, in future surveys. Like insectivorous mammals, like dunnarts? Yeah, that's right. We've got we've got dunnarts that occur um, naturally in the property. We get common dunnarts quite a lot, and bat-tailed dunnarts occur in the region. So maybe in the future, if we um, if we do our jobs well, we might see some of them on Yukamara as well. That'd be good. That'd and are you thinking cool. maybe Fasca gales to go I back there? I would love some Fasca gales, but that's well in the future. <laughs> we haven't haven't got any plans for that um, at Yukamara, but um, maybe <laughs> Helen can talk about red-tailed Fasca gales. Yes, we have reintroduced red-tailed Fasca gales to New Haven uh, Wildlife Sanctuary, which is about four hours outside of Alice Springs. Uh, we've also reintroduced red-tailed Fasca gales to Mallee Cliffs, which is um, about an hour out of Mordura, and also Mount Gibson, which is about four hours out of Perth. So we're certainly helping red-tailed Fasca gales sort of come back to where they once used to be. And as Ali said, they're an important 
uh, tropic level of the species that we're trying to sort of, or ecosystems that we're trying to protect and reintroduce mammals to. Um, and for people that might not know, a fascigal. What's a fascigal? A very small sort of uh, marsupial mouse. Um, looks a little bit like a dunnart. Uh, we have a couple of fascigal species in Australia. So the red-tailed fascigal is uh, has a red tail. Um, we've also got brush-tailed fascigals. Um, and yeah, I guess they might look a bit like a dunnart if you saw one in the wild. Um, but they're up in the trees and yeah, beautiful species. Yeah, I mean, they used to be here once upon a time we're in the mount lofty ranges so we're about an hour and a bit from you guys and i think they'd be a fantastic one for reintroduction so the brush tail faster is bigger than the red tail and i think it's bigger than the northern one i'm not sure but um i read that they can take down a chicken so they're about 230 grams but they can take down a chicken it's a good effort and you think we can take it down a chicken chickens are scary yeah that's right they're taking <laughs> dinosaurs yeah, that's right amazing. <laughs> um, so that'd be good because a lot of facilities are breeding them at the moment, red tail fast gals, because they're looking at putting them back in a few places, like you've mentioned a couple. Yeah, yeah, um, they are. Um, so we partnered with Alice Springs Desert Park um, up in Alice Springs that were phenomenal at, um, you know, getting the pairings right and looking at genetics and who goes with who. You know, that's expertise which we so value, you know. So um, Alice Springs Desert Park have been hugely supportive with that. Um, and we've also got red-tailed fascigales at Monato Zoo. Um, so I think, yeah, so it's yeah really important. And also they're a really good species to breed up in captivity. They're sort of quite productive. Um, whereas, you know, when we're trying to harvest these animals from the wild, these wild populations, you know, are quite small and isolated and we need to be really careful in terms of how many can be harvested and when. So... The fact that captive breeding programs can really enhance that and enhance the number of individuals that we can release is fantastic. Um, and the more individuals we can get out there, the better for genetic purposes and for just giving them the best chance at their survival in their new surroundings. That's exciting. And that'd be one that could get out of the fence and maybe you could be like an engine room, to quote Tim Faulkner, mm. yeah, um, yeah. and they could maybe start appearing throughout oh. the Riverland. That's, yeah, who knows? Who that knows? Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Um, so apart from like like at Yukamara, where you've got the reintroduction, um, the species you've reintroduced rather, you're also protecting the species that are already there, like you mentioned Dunarts. Um, what else is living there that you're keeping free from cats and foxes? We uh, pick up quite a few species in our regular surveys. So we've got um, stacks of birds and uh, reptile species that occur naturally um, in the area. And <laughs> keeping Steve engaged. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the species that we're really excited about, a reptile, is the, the Murray Darling carpet python, which occurs in such low numbers in the wild that it, it was um, thought to be extinct in certain regions. So we didn't reintroduce the, the, the carpet python into Yukamara, it just sort of introduced itself. Um, so over the years, we've seen um, a couple uh, of, of carpet pythons around the place, and they seem to be increasing in number just from the sightings that we get, which will be, you know, just while we're driving around, we'll see one um, crossing the road or uh, on top of a log. So that's a species we're really excited to have. Um, it's important um, as part of Australian Wildlife Conservancy's uh, work with the animals we do. We don't want to create, um, you know, a zoo population that's, that's just not got any predator awareness or anything. So having the native predators like the carpet pythons, which would definitely take a, you know, a baby um, numbat or a, or a woolly or something 
um, having that predation pressure keeps, you know, keeps the animals on their toes. Um, and as well, we've got, you know, native uh, raptors. So we've got hawks um, and eagles that um, would keep, keep the animals aware of the, the predator situation. So if there was ever a chance that they're um, released into the wild, they're not just going to be uh, food for the, nearest, for the nearest raptor, which is good. That's really good. Carpet pythons in the wild. That would be a dream of mine. Yeah. I'll come up and see them one day. We actually got one just a few a few weeks ago that was halfway through the fence. So um, the, the the carpet python was trying to trying to get in, but it's halfway out, which means that you know we we we're sort of uh, supplementing the wild population with carpet pythons. So that's what I like to think anyway. <laughs> <laughs> helping them. That's Help, good. Helping them to reestablish in the wild. Yeah. Do you think the animals that you've got in there would struggle if if you did release any, or have they got? Are they fully switched on to, to as in proper wild animals? Well, the problem is that the native species of Australia don't have any um, uh, history of evolution with the introduced predators, so feral cats, um, red foxes. Um, they don't have any awareness of that predator. Um, and if you release them into the wild, or the ones that occur in the wild already, they often don't have any um, strategies to cope with uh, living with those predators, um, and that's because they've they've evolved for so long without anything that's even remotely similar to a cat. That none of the strategies that they do have for their native predators work for the um the introduced predators. So things like um like a bridled nail-tailed wallaby, which is one of the species that the Australian Wildlife Conservancy um, works with on some of our eastern properties. Uh, the bridled nail-tailed wallaby will go under a bush, um, a spiky bush, is like a, a it's, that's its strategy to hide from raptors, which is a great strategy for a raptor, but obviously like a cat or a fox is just going to walk in after it and eat it. So those are strategies that um, have seen those species do fantastically well in the wild. But as soon as we change the landscape and introduce things that they can't cope with, they have no recognition of, then that's when you have trouble. Cats and foxes are such successful predators, aren't they? Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Especially the fact they kill more than they need. So the impact that a single animal will have is way bigger than what it should have in mm. terms of its diet. Do you control what's outside the fence? Do you bait or do anything? Yeah, Yukamara. So we've got um, 1,100 hectares fenced and um, our total property size is just um, about 5,000 hectares. So the area that's unfenced is larger than the area that we have fenced at Yukamara. Um, so species that occur outside the fence that don't occur, occur inside the fence are things like you know, emus, um, we've got southern hairy-nosed wombats, um, and we do have uh, red foxes that show up um, on our camera traps occasionally. So we do things like um, baiting, um, and we've got goats, which we, which we trap on occasion as well. Um, and that's to, to keep those numbers down. We have a pretty successful baiting pro program for the foxes, yeah. Do you think you would ever put quolls into Yukamara? Yukamara is a bit small, so a thousand hectares is one of our is, is one of our smaller um, fenced properties. So a quoll, you know, we might only be able to keep a couple, which is not a popular a self-sustaining population. Um, but some of our larger properties, I think a quoll would do fantastically but as a species to, to, to introduce native predation pressure on species that are used to native predation pressure would be a great idea i like, yep. I like quolls <laughs> me too quolls are amazing <laughs> yeah yep. so we've actually we've got western quolls that have been reintroduced to mount gibson in wa 
Um, and we've also got western quolls as one of the species that we would love to reintroduce at our New Haven property. So the New Haven fenced area is 9,450 hectares. So mm. you can start mm. seeing, as Ali said, you know, Yukamara is one of the smaller ones. It's small but mighty. Small but mighty. <laughs> and because it's one of the longer-running reintroduced population sites, you know, we can learn a lot from that for our new properties. Um, so in terms of Western Coal, yeah, love them as well. So, um, and back in the day, there used to be spotted tail quolls, eastern quolls that used to be around that Murray-Darling Basin bioregion, um, and even Western quolls as well. So, you know, you could have three different species that once upon a time used to be there. Another thing with Yukamara, which makes it um, a little bit challenging to manage outside the fence sort of stuff is, you know, we've got 27 other neighbouring properties. So, you know, we could do a heap of fox baiting or a heap of cat trapping or a heap of different management techniques, but then we're just creating that sink. Um, whereas, you know, we all know that a lot of that sort of feral animal control is most successful and done, you know, coordinated and integrated with neighbouring properties and things like that. Whereas, you know, when we've got larger properties like New Haven or Mallee Cliffs, you've got a lot more land, so you can get a lot more sort of landscape scale um, outcomes. So, yeah, Yukamara is, um, yeah, smaller, but what we do is, is working. We've got Mallee fowl as well outside the fence. So, yeah, certainly what we're doing in terms of fox control is definitely helping. Yeah. That's great. Um, you guys know David Peacock, I'm sure. I mentioned him probably every episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's amazing. I think he's just had a new paper out. Yeah, he did, yeah. Oh, no, on the conversation. There was yeah. a little um, piece about quolls eating yeah, I think it is a paper humans. too. He talked about it here yeah. on the podcast before the paper came out. Dead humans. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, not, that's, yeah dead right. humans back in the day. But yeah, not just back in the last day. week. But, um, but, if, I mean, but if you die at home, your dog's going to eat you. Mm. Your cat's going to eat you. Give it enough time. Why not have a native predator doing it? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you got to appreciate reptiles. They'll kill you and eat you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they put in the work. Absolutely. They deserve yeah. it. That's right. They kill you. They've got to eat you. Yeah. Um, Oh, obviously, the Western Quolls put back eight years ago. Um, about, I don't know, seven or eight months ago now, I was in Port Augusta and I was doing a show and uh, finished my show. And one of the Indigenous teachers came up to me afterwards and said, do you work with those spotted cat things? And I said, Quolls, yeah, um, we've got you know, we've got one we show people. She said, no, leopards. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and he said, me and my dad were at Lake Frome and we saw one. So, and I've been between Lake Frome and the Flinders and there's all those drainage channels and you think, well, it's possible. So, I told David, he goes, oh, I don't know if it's possible. And then a week later, he called me and said, that's absolutely possible because we just caught one on a camera trap in the Baller Ranges. Wow. It's like over 200 k's away. So, they they go a distance, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, we heard a very similar story as well. And, you know, the, the community is pretty small. So, when you hear of something like that, it's... It's amazing, and these animals do have amazing ability to run and roam, mm. and especially if it's a younger male dispersing, it's um, yeah, they're amazing. It was just amazing that it was actually captured on camera, and it actually got there instead of being predated or hit by a car or whatever it might have been. So yeah, mm. they have got amazing ability to move through the landscape. So do you think it's more likely that that was just an outlier from the the chemical fence in the Flinders, or do you think there's a few kind of establishing, or we don't really know? don't really know. I mean, wouldn't it be lovely to think that there's little sort of secret pockets of poles that we don't know about? Um, I think, you know, it's it's quite likely that, 
yeah, the animal dispersed from the reintroduced population that was um, established at, around the Wilpeter Pound a few years ago. So, yeah, but who knows? Who knows? I think in this industry, you know, a big thing is to have hope and to think, never never assume that you know what is out there and always be looking and, and listening to other people that are out, whether it's farmers, whether it's tourists, you know, what they see or hear and you never know. Which brings us into thylacines. I'm joking. Please, <laughs> yeah. please take that out. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I'm um, going to put it in there to make it look like you believe there's thylacines. <laughs> um, and I, I'll also just add it possibly could have come from our recovery too because they've got them in their fenced area and they do get out of fenced areas. Um, I saw one of the Melofty Rangers 20 years ago, but that would have got out of Warrawong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. and they used to get reported in people's runs or roadkill. And, yeah. and that's only, that's only, at the time, it was about 85 acres and um, yeah. it's bigger. Mm-hmm. But, but what are you, a thousand? What did you say? You a can thousand, yeah, fenced. Just put a couple in there. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have to, yeah, you'd have to manage them as, like, you know, process. It's okay. They'd get so inbred if you didn't do anything. I think do. Adrian's just covered the science. Let's <laughs> 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 do it. There you go. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> I have yeah. a signature under the still. Yeah. Oh, we'll be good to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it is exciting about the red tail fascicles. So what, what other exciting animals are there in some of the other AWC properties? Where to begin? Um, <laughs> so in terms of fence, uh, so in terms of fences, you know, I think you you sort of listed them, bilbies, numbats, uh, we've got bridled nail tails at our Scotia Sanctuary in Western New South Wales. Um, we've got... So just, sorry, yeah. bridled nail tails. Yeah. So that's like a, a nail tail. So wallaby... <laughs> With a nail on its tail, is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, one of my favourite species. If for anyone who's never seen one before, please Google it. You'll, you won't be disappointed. Um, they're almost as pretty as my yellow-footed rock wallabies. Some would argue. Oh, they're going to fight again. <laughs> they're going to fight again. That's right. Yeah. So they've got this little waistcoat um, and it's beautiful black stripe down the back and a beautiful white stripe on their cheek. Um, the locals up in Queensland call them the flashjack. So, yeah, the bridal, the bridal nail-tail wallaby, there's three nail-tail species in the Onychogalia um, genus. So the crescent nail-tail wallaby has gone extinct. Um, the northern nail-tail wallaby is doing quite well up north. Um, but the bridal nail-tail wallaby is actually a Lazarus species. So the Lazarus species are the ones that were thought to be extinct and then later found to be uh, still alive. So the bridal nail-tail wallaby is a very interesting story, thought to be extinct for 30 years, and then a, um, a fencing contractor saw this species um, out and about and uh, his wife recognised the description from an article in Women's Day of all places um, and so the the um, government was told and they went and confirmed that the species was indeed still alive on a property in central Queensland. So there's one native property left in the whole world and from that property they've re- re-established at Scotia Sanctuary and um, at the Pilliga and there's two wild uh, populations that have been re-established, but one of them um, unfortunately had to close because of drought, so just to prove that they're really on the brink of extinction, this species. So without, you know, working and getting getting in there and getting them out into centuries, they could be quite in a dire situation indeed. But, um, yeah, a very fascinating species in terms of their rediscovery. And what a story. <laughs> and no one knows why they have a nail on their tar, do they? Somebody, somebody told <laughs> a reporter at one point that the nail, the, the little claw at the tip of the tail was so that when they're running, it, when they're hopping at speed, they can put the claw on the ground and, you know, turn on a really sharp angle. 
But of course, so anyone. You're, so you're saying that's what it's for. <laughs> I am, we'll leave it there. That's right. <laughs> I am coming out now to tell you that that is, <laughs> that is a fallacy. Don't read what you believe. Uh, it's for nose picking. <laughs> nose picking is a good one. I've also heard um, that they play tic-tac-toe in the sand. You know, they'll, they'll <laughs> write I've, messages to I've each other. I've heard that with the bilbies because they've got a claw in their toe. And again, no one knows why, but some people think it's marking and communicating. I mean, I don't think there's any evidence for that. but <laughs> It's got to be just the stigil. You've got to think that, that from a time when that genus used to have a, a prehensile tail for, you know, there are other species that have pre- prehensile tails and you've got to think that that's what it's from, that they used it as part of carrying the stuff around. So back in the possumy ancestral days. Yeah, yeah. Tic-tac-tac is more interesting. <laughs> it could, yeah. Imagine they fight with it. Cheep, cheep, yeah. cheep. Lions have one too. Hmm. Did lions evolve from possums? I like to believe so. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's that little blind snake. You guys have a little blind snake yeah, up there. with a the little, little poor thing. Thing on its tail. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Give generously, guys. Um, <laughs> um, What's tic-tac-toe? <laughs> Oh my gosh, welcome to Australia. <laughs> it's a little game you play, noughts and crosses. Yeah, oh, noughts and crosses. crosses. That's, yeah. yeah, that's kind of what I thought it was. Yeah. You get to an age where it's impossible to lose at that game, huh? Yes. Yes. Oh, Steve yeah. hasn't answered. I'm waiting for Steve. All right. Yes, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah you do. Um, now, I did interrupt. Sorry, Ooh. Helen. You were talking some of the interesting species. And I got stuck on that one because they are a gorgeous animal. There's like, there's one that is extinct, though, isn't there? One the, of the nail tails. The crescent nail tail. Yeah, yeah, that's um, also a beautiful animal, too. But how great that they – so you call it a Lazarus? Lazarus a species? Lazarus species, like from the Bible, the guy who came back from the dead. Yeah. yeah. I've never said that word, and you could tell. Um, <laughs> but I had heard that, that like Gilbert's Pottery would be another one. That's right, yeah. 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 Gotcha. So whenever, you know, there could be populations of the koala or whatever out there that you might think are extinct in the region, but they, they, they could show up. You never know. Yeah. yeah. I got a call from someone last week, Judith, if you're listening, um, who said she saw a northern hairy-nosed wombat um, in New South Wales, so well outside of the region where they're thought to be now. Oh, they're just like Wouldn't central that... Queensland, aren't they? Yeah, 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 sort of southern central, yeah, but um, mm. yeah, ages away from where they're, they're thought to occur. But in its um, previous home range, so you never know. Ooh. Could be in uh, a northern hairy-nosed wombat in Hunter Valley. It's probably a thylacine. It's probably one. It gets a little bit cryptozoological, doesn't it? And a bit it. exciting. Because um, Kath, when we had Kath Kemper on the show, curator of mammals from the museum back in the day, she was saying that uh, the animal she thought is still out there is the Calopremnus. It's uh, like a little one kilo potoroid, like a little betony thing. Um, nice to think. Never know. Mm-hmm. Never know. It's quite an expanse out there. You can kind of think that something could be missed in one of these pockets. It's nice to think that. People find, yeah. they find things, don't they? Mm. Um, the, you mentioned the pygmy blue time earlier before we started recording. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, was or did you mention <laughs> the pygmy? Someone mentioned, Steve mentioned the pygmy. Steve, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a, another great sort of rediscovery story and Ali knows that. In the, in the stomach of a brown snake. Yeah. Mm. What a great place to find it. Yeah. It's an extinct species. What a weird place to live. <laughs> <laughs> it's where they've been hiding, though. It's the least, the least likely place to look. That's right. Um, but no, there's always yeah. those little, not, no, not always, but those, those little discovery moments, mm. are, they're treasures. Yeah. 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 So you never know what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years. Mm. Yeah. They're only like 50 k's away from us as well, the pygmy blue tongue. So close. So Ooh, yeah, yeah, right. Maybe okay. they'll show up when you... Well, they used to be in Adelaide. They're one of a couple of reptiles that were in Adelaide that are no longer here. 
So we used to have them here, and we used to have death adders on the coast, and we always joked, don't we, that no one wants to reintroduce death adders to the coast of Adelaide. Mm. Um, I do. Apart oh, from they'll Steve. take yeah. the numbets, but they won't. Take <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, just to keep Steve awake, what other reptiles are inside yes. some of your enclosed? <laughs> nice eye roll there, Helen. Um, other reptiles. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so, again, so... Up in, up in the northern part of Australia, which I haven't explored much in my current role at all, I'm, you know, you see in weekly reports that come through from the field teams up there, there's a whole host of amazing um, reptiles, geckos. The ke- geckos up in the Kimberley region are just amazing, as you guys would know, especially you, Steve. Mm. Um, so, you know, and these are areas outside, nothing to do with fences. These are just species that are extant on these properties that we're now protecting and quite often protecting with our partners. So, you know, it's um, we do a lot of work with mammals. You know, Australia has the worst extinction rate of small to medium mammals in the world, which is why we have been focusing so much of our efforts on mammals. But we've also got, you know, a suite of reptiles out there that we're working really hard to protect and conserve, as well as birds, um, frogs as well. So... You know, it's, um, yeah, Mallee fowls are one and, you know, out at Yukamara, one of the key conservation assets out there is our old growth Mallee, so really hollow, rich Mallee trees, which are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it's just an ecosystem that you don't see anymore. The Mallee that a lot of us see and experience is what we call new growth Mallee. So it's really, um, it's really different to old growth Mallee. There's no hollows. It takes up to 200 years for a hollow to form for a, a brush-tailed possum to use. So, you know, in that sort of ecosystem, you get all those beautiful, you know, parrots and brown tree creepers that, and western pygmy possums that rely on hollows for shelter. So, you know, there's pockets of old growth Mallee as well in other properties uh, like Mallee Cliffs in Scotia. So hopefully this discussion just shows, you know, because we're working all across Australia, there's all sorts of ecosystems that we're protecting. And then from there, there's a whole host of, of species that are just on those properties that we're trying to conserve. Um, the marla is another reintroduced mammal species, which I love. Um, I don't have favourites, but the marla is, um, is an amazing species, which we've reintroduced back into New Haven. And it's a really culturally significant species as well, like the bilby um, to the Walkley people. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting we saw them, Steve, yeah. when we were at that large monitor conference in mm-hmm. Central Australia. We had a, um, I think Scott took us around. The, oh, um, the Nocturnal House. Yeah, they're in the Nocturnal House. Um, what is it? The Alice Springs Desert Park. And they had the, the little fluffy little, mm-hmm. look like a giant ripper's bed on. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> like a little yeah. fluffy T-Rex. They're, so, they're so cute. <laughs> yeah, I they're said, if you can cute. sneak me one, yeah. I'll take it. So, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't have taken it. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't see it. They didn't see it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and why are they culturally significant? Sorry. Uh, so there were some really um, significant storylines that were present in Central Australia around the Marla. Um, I don't know all the details. I probably should, but I don't. Um, but I know that, yeah, very, very significant. And when they were brought back to New Haven, it was a really big deal for our Indigenous rangers on the ground as well as, you know, the AWC team. But, um, yeah, really strong storylines that were really strong sort of features that featured in those storylines, yep. Oh, that's great. That's really, really great. Um, bilbies are amazing, aren't they? 
Yep. We had them at Warrawong, mm-hmm. and they never did really well up here in the hills because I think it's because it's too wet. That was the thinking. Um, it's also not really sandy country for them, but they were traditionally in Adelaide. Um, yeah, Pinky's really... Flat. Pinky's Flat, yeah. yeah, down by the Torrens. Yep. Yeah, named yep. after Boobies. They used to call them Pinkies. Yep. Now, their burrows and burrowing bedongs super important for other animals, not just them. Bilbies and uh, burrowing bettongs, um, as well as a number of other species, are called um, ecosystem engineers. And that's um, if they they occur on the landscape, uh, the effect they have on the landscape is so pronounced that they they engineer it, they change the way the landscape um, looks and behaves for other species. So a single bilby will will move um, 20 tonnes of earth every single year. So I don't know about you, but if I oh. somebody gave me a shovel and a, and a wheelbarrow, I don't even know if I could do twenty tons in a year. Um, so that's one one bilby, and um, the things like burrowing betongs will move um, about eight tons a year. But um, the bilby in particular, just from having um, that that effect on the landscape, is a is a huge impact. So the the, the burrows um, when wind blows across them, you get you know uh, dead leaves, seeds, water collects in them. So what it ends up looking like is um, is like a little pot with mulch in it. So when, when you've got seeds in there, then they've got this beautiful, rich uh, pot to grow in and um, it changes the habitat just by having bilbies in there doing that digging. It's like a little micro-habitat. That's that right. Because yeah. I was starting off, I was thinking, wow, they're destructive animals. <laughs> but yeah, that's cool. You lose the biocrost in one spot, at the <laughs> but then you get trees. That's so good. I love bilbies. Mm. Do you have any bandicoots in your any of your properties? Bilbies, we, bilbies cousins. Yeah, we we're looking at um, reintroducing the what used to be the Western Bard Bandicoot, or now known as the Shark Bay Bandicoot. Um, so we've got a couple of properties where they're flagged to go in in the future, and Southern Browns, and Southern Browns Brown. on Kangaroo Island. Yeah, so we partnered with yeah, as I mentioned before, KO Land for Wildlife. Um, and this was in response to the bushfires on Kangaroo Island a couple of years ago to set up um, a fenced area around sort of critical Kangaroo Island Dunart habitat. Um, so the fence is quite small, but, you know, the purpose of it was to protect that critical habit, habitat post-fire and to really eliminate pressure from feral cats, which were going to prey on the KI Dunart. Um, so our monitoring has suggested that that is successful, so that's great. But also what is on Kangaroo Island is the Southern Brown Bandicoot. So we have got Southern Brown Bandicoots inside that fenced area, but also on the wider area beyond that as well. Um, yes, we've got Southern Brown Bandicoots there. And then our um, one of our smaller properties that works in partnership is North Head, which is within Sydney. So you can go to Sydney, you can go and visit North Head and walk around um, that property there. And they've got um, bandicoots and pygmy possums and bush rats and all these amazing smaller species that we're protecting there as well and have reintroduced. Were there bandicoots where Yukamaris, Westerns would have been there, Western Bards? Yeah, apparently Western Bard bandicoots used to be there, yep, because um, they used to come and like so many of these, like Philby's what you were saying before, they used to cover almost 90% of Australia back in the day. Um, burrowing bedongs used to be one of the most common species um, and now, you know, Quite often people have never heard, heard of a betong. So, you know, these species used to have quite large ranges. And Western Bard Bandicoots actually used to be one of those species. They used to come down into Western Victoria as well. Um, yeah, so 
They certainly used to be around the Yukamara area. The thing with Yukamara is we've got no sand. We've got calcrete. Um, so, again, it makes it really interesting for the bilby because you'd probably look at it and go, it's not sandy. That's not very good. But they're so adaptive and they've managed to find little cracks and crevices in the calcrete to, to dig burrows and foraging pits and, and very similar to the burrowing betongs as well that have amazing big warrens. Um, I don't want to say like what rabbit warrens because, you know, they're like betong warrens. They're different <laughs> and they're better. Um, yeah. And, yeah, a whole host of other species use them, use those warrens and burrows as well. So even little geckos, like little um, – we've got the thick-tailed or barking gecko at Yukamara, so they use them, carpet pythons, um, yeah, blind snakes. Yeah, it's a really important part of the system. Yeah, we, we um, heard a talk from a researcher. I wish I could remember her name, but she was studying parentes and she was talking about the parentes are using burrowing betong burrows, but in the NT they're gone. So the burrows are still being used. It's like a, wow. the burrows of a ghost. Mm. Yeah, there's relic warrens all through the centre. Um, and again, when we're talking about the common brush-tailed possum that isn't as common as what it once was, the brush-tailed possum used to extend up into the arid interior and also use burrowing betong warrens as a shelter site. So, wow. you know, up in the centre there's not many hollow trees or anything like that. So, yeah, it's, um, it's amazing how, you know, it all used to be. And it's interesting how you said how the tree hollows can take hundreds of years to develop. Like we, we know that they can take up to 100 years to develop, but in the dry, yeah. it can take hundreds Everything of years. is longer in the yeah. semi-arid and arid zone. Um, so, yeah, you know, a mallee tree, it takes, um, you know, on a, it depends on species, depends on rainfall and soil, but on average a mallee tree will grow one millimetre per year in diameter. So you can start thinking of how long this process wow. takes and when you do see an old Mallee tree that has a hollow in it you know if you think of how old that tree is that's why I was saying it could easily be a 100 600 800 year old tree wow yeah so it, it all happens a bit slower <laughs> yeah and you think about all the species that require hollows you know birds bats you know, small mammals reptiles so many species that need them to live um, and so protecting that habitat is so yeah, that's why John chose to build Yukamara there, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, so we're, we're not far from Warrawong, which is sort of where the Earth Sanctuary story started. Um, and then after the success of Warrawong, Yukamara was the next property to be established. And, yeah, one of the key reasons Yukamara was chosen was because it was in amongst um, Mallee ecosystem. Mallee is very unique to Australia. Over 70% of our Mallee ecosystem has actually been completely decimated through land clearance um, since the early 1900s, so it's a really threatened Mallee um, ecosystem as well. But not just that, because it also had the old-growth Mallee, so that was a really important feature of that parcel of land. And it was also the parcel of land that was fenced first. And there's a really nice... Um, parcel of old-growth Mallee outside the fence as well. So that's when Ali's talking about, you know, what other species could we have. Mm -hmm. That's why red-tailed fascigales have come up because the habitat outside the fence is also just as, as lovely. I read something the other day, but this might be one of your plans. Rhinos Ooh. released into Australia. I've have you ever heard that? Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, I heard about Monado getting them, but I did only just briefly hear someone mention a plan to release them, to into, release the them into the wild, but I mean that's like I don't know. That sounds odd because I'll never hear. So why? I, I can understand mm. why to protect them, but I can understand in a free range 
mm. park like Monado, like an open range zoo, but yeah, that, I don't think that'd be a very good idea. But I actually read that they were planning to release them into the wild somewhere in Australia. Yeah. I suspect it wasn't true. So one yeah. of the important um, features of arid landscapes is actually the biocrust, which a lot of people overlook, but things like your mosses and your lichens and your um, cryptogams um, are really important, especially in the arid zone. That, that contains... Um, uh, most of the erosion is reduced because of the biocrust layer. And I think if you start putting something like rhinos up there. So um, species like, you know, kangaroos, you might think are quite big and heavy, but they've got soft pores. So the impact they have on biocrust is really small. But I think a rhino would have a, a huge impact on um, a, a feature of the arid landscape that would not be, um, you wouldn't be able to replace easily. Mm. A single biocrust um, same as Mali forms only about a centimetre um, every decade. So if, if you look at the you know the moss on your rock on the garden or something, that's an ancient moss. So don't sit on it. Mm, <laughs> it's so fragile, isn't it? Mm. And then people complain that they're not allowed to drive their cars on it and mm. do drag racing and stuff. Yep. It's a tough, tough gig, isn't it? Cons- being a conservationist, you're such a killjoy, <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the more you learn, the bigger killjoy you become. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Sucks. Yeah. Sucks. So no rhinos? No, I uh, hope not. I, I, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Helen's hiding something. <laughs> Looks very guilty right now. I think she's going to take your uh, yellow foot of rock quality. Maybe she's maybe oh, she's got a sure. rhino in the back pocket. No, no, no. I'm connected to her. Do you have any properties with planning gals? Yeah, not as reintroduced, but, yeah, certainly, um, you know, as extant species. So we've got um, a Flanagale species up it. So we've got a property called Calamurna, which is right smack bang sort of south of Simpson Desert, north of sort of Lake Hare, so right in the middle of beautiful sort of outback South Australia. So they've got Flanagales there, and I'm sure we have them elsewhere. But they're amazing. I've seen one in my lifetime, and it was just so tiny, teeny, that it fit under the sort of treadle of an Elliot trap. And then the person I was with were like, we've got a planet gale. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, you don't. And then <laughs> it was there, like all flat, right there under the treadle. That's yeah. so, I've only ever seen Alive, a, sorry. Alive, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. well, I've only seen a dead one. Um, <laughs> Nathan from Arab Recovery. competition. Had a, no, that's right. No, well, yours is alive, so you win. Um, this was a dead one. I think that was a Giles planet gale mm. um, in a jar. But the long tail is only like four grams. Yeah, ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Wow, four grand. That's what a pygmy python hatches as. Yeah, right. Oh, that's yeah, insane. That's cute. <laughs> Whoa. No, sorry. Okay, wow. all right, all right. We'll stop uh, there then. Okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the little four gram common dunnart that we that caught you yeah. in the survey last year. Yeah, I look at my baby dunnarts, and when dunnarts are, but, like, you look at a dunnart, it's not flat, like, because Planningale translates to flat weasel. So, and they're really flat. And the baby dunnarts are really flat. Like a planning gal, it's weird, and then they sort of fatten, become more cylindrical as they get older. Mm. Um, so I look at them and think that's the size of a long-tailed planning gal. It's Adult. so strange. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Um, still twice as big as the smallest mammal in the world, bumblebee bat. Oh. And there's a shrew in the Philippines. No, it is amazing. I think that's one of the, the greatest joys of doing what we do um, is experiencing animals like that, you know, Um it's just, it's so cool. It's sort of, um, you know, you go out to some remote properties and you see species that, you know, some people have never even heard of or you didn't know existed or, you know, so it's, it's pretty amazing. It's 
career and what we do. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah, 250-plus species of marsupial in Australia. Most people are lucky to name 10. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm sure there's probably some feral species in there. There's some introduced species as well, which people might think are actually native, but they're not. Mm. So, yeah, it's, um, it is great. So It's quite amazing how, like, you guys, we're coming from England, not having that much knowledge on these things, but the amount of knowledge that you guys have you probably take for granted. But when I sit here doing podcasts with people like it's just like amazing that someone can have that knowledge and 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 know those things. I just find it awesome. It's like you with snakes. <laughs> I don't I don't think yeah, I don't know that much about reptiles as a whole, but you guys are just going on, you know, all these different species. I'm a bit of a one trick pony with pythons. <laughs> and I know a few other bits as well, but you know, and knowing where these animals are and that, I mean, it's so complicated in my head still to know where some of these animals come from and, and where they are. It's just insane. I find it very impressive. Ian nerds. Nerds. How do you get? In, how do you guys get into ecology? Has it been something you've always wanted to get into? I started my professional career um, in immunology. I was an immunologist. And then I heard one lecture by this guy, um, Professor Mike Archer, if you're listening, hi. Um, and he uh, gave this amazing, it was a guest lecture in one of the courses I was taking. Um, and he talked about elephants and he talked about um, mountain pygmy possums. And I was sitting there, you know, didn't even touch my pen and paper when I was writing my notes. I was just so blown away. I literally went that afternoon, changed my degree, changed my life, became a conservation ecologist. and wow. never looked back. Yeah. Just one fateful day that I didn't, it wasn't even a, you didn't have to go to the lecture, it just showed up, you know, oh, nothing better to do today. Yeah. Good job, Mike. Trouble <laughs> is with like the, the immunologists and that, they earn too much money, don't they? <laughs> and the work, the work is so boring. You get these amazing results, you get to grow a heart in a test tube, that's so cool. But the work to get there is like swabbing things and agar plating things my god i go out now i can i like open my door in the morning and i'm in the mallee you walk past a beton when i walk home you know what i mean wouldn't do that if i was building hearts in a lab stop moaning (laughs) (laughs) you chose it (laughs) so you picked the right career for you i picked the right career so just to be fair there's someone out there that's super happy to be swabbing an agar plate and growing a heart and they'll be like oh gross you live out in the sandy (laughs) what there's bed on rat things hopping around i have to check Um, my boots for spiders every morning yeah (laughs) (laughs) um mike archer shared one of my posts once i um, put a video up of one of my quals when it was being raised living in the house and he shared one and reminisced about the quoll that he had raised. Wow. Yeah. He's a big proponent of um, keeping native species as pets. Because why are we allowed to cats when your cat can go out and kill whatever it wants at night? But we're not allowed quolls. Yeah. Well, we are. If you get the permit. Yeah, Some states you can. Big enough say. land in this say, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, you can keep them in like a cat run, though, can you? I mean, I've got a quoll in a four metre by four metre. Look, I'm not an advocate for keeping native animals as pets. Mm. I'm not against it, and we did a whole podcast about it, so I won't get in this road, but we, I decided that the positives outweigh the negatives. Um, there's always going to be negatives, but it doesn't take away from the conservation work that you guys do, um, and it can even add to it with awareness and education. And the states where people are allowed to keep the native animals as pets, they learn more about caring, them, caring for them and um, they're more aware and, I don't know, more experienced, and I think it's kind of... I think the positives outweigh the negatives, but anyone that's against it, I will meet them halfway, and I will go, yep, I can see those points too. 
but then you get crazies on both ends of it. There are people that think, so, so many people come out and say, we should all have quolls and we should all have wombats. And I just think, you don't want a wombat. I don't, well, you definitely, <laughs> agreed, agreed. <laughs> um, but yeah, like pet and pets, it's a trigger word too, because like, mm. I mean, you know, it's not a country practice, um, you know, country you practice with a show where they had a pet wombat in the house. Oh, no. And there wasn't any bite marks in the lounge, so well, just not rubbish made up. Rubbish. You can't look at my lounge. <laughs> Sorry. Did you know Napoleon had a pet wombat? What? Fun fact. Yeah. Really? And he it ate it ate all his gardens, and so it became unpopular. So that's why wombats are not a popular pet. Thank you, Napoleon. Huh. <laughs> huh. I'll keep that one. The more you know. Look at that. Napoleon had a wombat. Mm-hmm. What species? Couldn't tell you. All right. You got a one in three. Isn't that right? <laughs> you could have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, Helen, how did you become an ecologist? What made you want to become a... Or you don't, you know, you hate it. I hate <laughs> it. This is the worst job and career. Do um, to be a viral <laughs> No, no, absolute opposite. Yeah, so forever it was all about animals, loved animals, loved domestic animals. I wanted to be a vet uh, when I was in primary school and then I realised that I would have to probably bond with animals and then I realised I could work with wild animals, didn't realise there was any paid work with it except for a zookeeper. Um, so then when I did year 10 work experience at Melbourne Zoo, which was amazing, I realised I didn't want to work with uh, like captive animals. And it wasn't until, I guess, I went to uni and did Bachelor of Science that I realised that there were was a whole world out there of ecologists and ecology work and conservation work. Um, and really it was the volunteering that I did at uni that I just went, oh, this is, this is it. Um, I want to be a threatened species ecologist, um, particularly around mammals. And it just went from there. So after uni, um, I volunteered at Arid Recovery here in South Australia and it, yeah, it changed my life. Honestly, it just, um, just opened up a whole new world. And, um, I think, yeah, it just went from there. So I started with fenced reserves. After our recovery, I moved to ACT uh, with ANU and worked at the Mulligan's Flat Sanctuary, so another fenced reserve situation. And then from there, I then came to Australian Wildlife Conservancy um, at Yukamara, another fenced reserve. And then I had kind of heard about Yukamara beforehand because I actually visited Yukamara as a tourist with my parents uh, when I was at uni. I can't remember when exactly, early uni, but that was another little moment on this sort of journey that I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. They've got a fence. They've reintroduced some locally extinct mammals. And then, yeah, it wasn't until then when I was at Arid Recovery to see it more of a, a landscape scale type project that I was like, yeah, this is it. That's such a familiar story. Um, I do, I teach wildlife handling. I do pracs for the vet students at Roseworthy here um, and animal behaviour students. And, I always ask him after we've done all the handling with the birds, mammals, reptiles and things, um, who he wants to work with wildlife. And there's a few hands that go up and there's a few that are kind of half up, like they're still looking at what's going on. And you kind of say to them, like, well, you know, what what do you think you might want to do? And I might want to work in a zoo, you know. And, and look, and absolutely, we need zoos. We need zookeepers. We need people to do it right. Like like Steve, for instance, does it the best you can possibly get when it comes to, you know, reptiles and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people don't know that there's other things that are available where you can actually work with wildlife. And that's why this podcast is great. Like a lot of the students listen to this podcast and I always give it a bit of a plug and I 
sort of tell them about some of the different things you can be involved in. I always plug you guys and fenced areas and also non-fenced areas and translocation and um, reintroductions into the wild and uh, or rewilding. Um, what else we talk about? We mentioned our recovery. We talk about felixes and you know nesting boxes and, and just habitat and ecology and awareness and education and it's um, fundraising. I mean, they're some of the most important people that are out there. Um, I've, I've had a couple of my staff here change degrees because they didn't realise that there was, you know, like you did, um, and you did, <laughs> um, didn't realise there was all this out there. And I'm really, really attracted to, as much as I love having a wallaby live in my house at the moment, I, I love my animals and I really do, um, it's the um, pristine bushland. Like I was never satisfied when I was managing Morawong because it's just revegetated, it's overgrazed, um, and it's got a lot of potential for education, don't get me wrong, and it's important and it's got platypus, great, but... It just didn't have all the, like you're talking about, the soil microbes and the fungi and the all, you know, that whole thing. And that's what really excites me. And if you don't, like, you can put it quite simply and say, you're not going to care about a better if you've never seen one. You're not going to care about biodiversity if you've never experienced it. And you can walk through the bush and it's no different to walking through a park if you've got your eyes closed. But if you spend time in it or you've got someone interpreting it to you. So tourism is another one. You so, guys used to do ecotourism there too, didn't you, once upon a time? Yeah, that's right. So when so Yukamara was actually established uh, back in 1989. Um, so, yeah, it's one of Australia's longest-running fenced reserves, which is pretty amazing, and it was established by John Wantley and Earth Sanctuary. And, you know, Earth Sanctuary was, uh, its primary focus was ecotourism and doing exactly that. So, you know, getting people in amongst the Mali ecosystem, in Yukamara's case, seeing, getting them to see animals in their natural habitat and, and things like that. When Australian Wildlife Conservancy took over ownership in um, 1997, you know, that was one of the biggest changes, I guess. And we still get phone calls today about people wanting to come and visit and stay at Yukamara because that was what you were able to do back then. Um, but AWC's priorities was around science, um, research, eco-health monitoring, um, certainly the reintroductions. Um, and getting those reintroduced mammals wild and self-sustaining, so getting them out of those captive breeding areas and having a wild self-sustaining population that we can then monitor and learn from to then improve other sites. And it wasn't so much about the ecotourism. So the one thing that we did take from that time was the school groups. So Yukamara still runs an education program. And, again, particularly in this day and age, it's so important um, you know, to engage, you know, our youth. Um, and, you know, we were chatting before and it's not uncommon to get a student come up to me or to one of the staff at Yukamara and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't realise that bilbies were a real thing. I thought they were like a unicorn. You know, so there's certainly a gap um, that I think we need to fill with good information. Um, so that's something that we've sort of kept going at Yukamara from those Earth Sanctuary days. Uh, another big difference between Earth Sanctuary times and the ecotourism program to what we have now is the number of staff that can actually deliver these programs safely. Um, we've only got, on, on Yukamara, we've got the sanctuary manager, uh, myself, and it used to be just the two of us and our son, little James. Um, so it just just be the two of us. And before that, the managers before us, it was just two people that were trying to run science programs as well as education programs. So we just didn't have that capacity to host groups um, 
And then now with Ali on board, we've sort of increased that capacity a little bit. Who knows in the future? I'm hopeful. I think um, education plays such an important part and it's a really nice sort of complements like what you do going into schools and showing animals. It complements that and brings people out into the environment and seeing the animals in their natural habitat, looking at the crust, feeling the crust, looking at a digging. And so when they are out in these landscapes, their eyes are a little bit more open. They might not know exactly what they're looking at, but they might be just seeing something a little bit different and going, oh, that's a digging. Oh, that might be a rabbit digging. Oh, that's right. Rabbits don't really belong here. How is that digging different to a bilby digging? It just gets people thinking about what they're looking at. So, yeah, I, I think it's really important. Um, I'd, I'd love to see more school groups, more information out there to facilitate and help teachers in classrooms about what we do. And, yeah, I think that'll be really great. Me and all my friends would love to walk through Yukamara with you guys and, and be shown some of these things. That would be so good. Yeah, and we – because there is – there's such a need and such an interest. So um, over the last couple of years we've done open days. We've done a couple of open days each year. COVID got in the way over the last couple of years. And the need is there, you know, as soon as we put the call out that we were having one, within a few hours all the spaces were filled. So there's certainly an interest, um, whether people are interested in the animals or – AWC as an organisation or just the Mallee or, you know, they might live down the road and have a patch of Mallee themselves. They'd like to know what they're looking at. You know, there's certainly a need. And um, I'm hopeful that now that, you know, the world in terms of COVID is settling a little bit, that'll come back online next year. So. Yes, Jazz yeah. Knights are back. Yeah. Well, maybe not Jazz Knights. <laughs> you Let's heard it here first. You heard it here first, guys. But it would, it, was but great. It, it would fund itself. It would become self-funding. It would put the people on. It would create jobs for young people. Let it go. Just let it go now. <laughs> no, okay, sorry. I don't know. <laughs> you need to do it every week because if you do it twice a year, you'll just get too many people yeah. there at once. And then that comes down to capacity side of things. Mm. Um, but then you're introducing but, people to AWC and yeah. people will go, do you know what? I'm leaving you all the money. Those relationships as well. So, oh, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, once upon a time, like in terms of this career, um, it was about, you know, seeing the next species or seeing the next remote area. You know, it was all that adventure, you know, and exciting sort of stuff. Whereas now, a little bit older, um, it's people, you know. I love hearing stories like that and engaging with people about what we do and get them interested and supporting what we do is, is amazing and um, it's all about people like we can't do what we are trying to do without people so whether that's yeah kids trying to be ecologists or zookeepers or whatever they want to do or um, just having yeah so it's those long-term relationships too isn't it yeah like absolutely if, if people just come as a one-off they'll forget it mm. um, I mean like what we find that here and with our shows you know it's, it's a lot of info in a short period of time you're not getting that message but the people that really get the message of what we're trying to do with the, the staff and the volunteers. Um, so I guess, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll move on. Ali, what's your favourite animal? Um, it used to be the quoll, but once I moved to Yukamara, the quoll has been superseded by the non-bat. They're just such a cool, the fact that they're the only diurnal marsupial and then they, they specifically eat termites. So those are two things that sets them apart from everything else. And then just the, the evolution that had to take place for them to reach that point makes them so different to other species that, that you just can't go past them as a, as a top-notch animal. So, they, so the fact they eat termites, a single numbat has to eat almost 30,000 termites a day, each numbat. And their stomach is so uh, specific to termites that if they – sometimes they'll accidentally eat ants because there are ants around that are also eating the termites. 
they might accidentally swallow an ant, but the ant will come out the other end pretty much fully, like still an ant because their stomach literally can't process anything that isn't a termite. That's so cool. <laughs> Quolls could never. <laughs> no, That's really strange, isn't it? <laughs> we, we had um, Dr. Talia Perry on the show talking about echidnas and how they slurp up ants and termites. Mm. Um, and they get a bit of, well, we thought it was, well, bycatch because they're getting plant matter and fungi in their stomach. But it turns out they've got the enzymes to break that material down so they're actually omnivores mm. and your kidneys can eat have a bigger diet than you think they would but um, yeah i think we were just misled by the fact that their poos just look like a bunch of ants <laughs> and dirt sandy sausages <laughs> sandy sausages there you go do you have a kidneys that you can marry yeah, would we do. Yeah. okay there we go yeah sandy sausages <laughs> does she work there sandy <laughs> sausages <laughs> <laughs> No, not, no, not, not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but damn, we'll take her on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> She's in lockdown, Steve. So if there's a sandy sausages out there. <laughs> um, there would be. So, yeah, num- look, numbats are great. I respect that. Yeah, have you ever much. seen a pinky numbat? I have never been lucky enough to see a yeah, baby numbat, unfortunately. I had never seen a numbat until I came to Yukamara. Same. Um, and we have really, we have a we have a really small population there. They used to be um, a couple hundred, but they they do fluctuate a bit. Um, and there's really not a lot of research as to why numbat populations um, rise and fall the way they do because they're from they're from the desert region. They should be quite um, resilient to um, drought and low rainfall, especially considering they don't they don't drink water. Um, they get all their water from their termite diet. So they shouldn't they shouldn't be affected by um by drought, um and then the the species that they eat termites. There are a lot of termite species do really well in drought, and then some termite species don't do so well in drought. But you'd think that the, their prey would be quite quite all right in drought as well. So why um numbat populations rise and fall is a really interesting question. That's um something that I've started looking at at Yukamara. So we've um, started looking at the termite populations inside and outside. The, uh, the fenced area, um, and ideally we would really like to set up like a long-term termite study, which has not been done before in the in the um, semi-arid region. So something where you can compare termite abundance with um, rainfall and see what's going on with termites and how this can be affecting numbat populations and other species that eat termites. So um, a study a few years ago uh, found that Digging mammals, any of the so bilbies, you know, betongs, we have four digging mammals at Yukamara. Um, so anything that disturbs the soil surface is going to be enough to make termites sort of reduce their abundance there. So any sanctuaries that have these species reintroduced theoretically could be um, experiencing, you know, fewer termites than uh, what's happening outside the reserve, um, which could be affecting numbats, but there's really not a lot of work going into how that how that what that does over time you know we've had numbats there for a number of decades so what's happening to our termites what's happening to our numbats and how can we use that to inform our um, our eco health monitoring at sanctuaries that haven't had numbats for as long as we have um, and what they can do in the future to um, to manage those populations that's fascinating so and so cool. and so mm. cool yeah so important um, and for people listening overseas we're talking about numbats and bedongs and bilbies animals that are completely extinct mm. throughout most of their former range, and so this work's so important. Um, when I was there uh, many, many years ago, back when Noel and was it Mel? Melissa, yeah. Melissa, yeah. Um, we were doing a, we helped them out on a bio survey. We volunteered and did some pupil trapping. 
Um, he said that they found a number on the outside of the fence. Yeah, yep. Um, it has happened, definitely. And numbats have also been seen outside the fence at, like our Matt Gibson property in WA. Um, so their, their heads are really, um, you know, pointy and long. So they can actually climb up and get through that sort of wider mesh in the fence. So they certainly can disperse if need to. The chance of them surviving outside the fence might not be as high as if they were inside the fence. Um, the ones at Mount Gibson, though, they again, it's a much larger property than at Yukamara, so they're doing a lot of intensive um, cat and fox control work outside, so they've got a, a better chance. Um, but, yeah, at Yukamara, I've been at Yukamara now for six and a half years or so. I've never seen one outside the fence. Um, not to say they're not there, but... So the, as, as you get up like 900 mil, it gets wider, doesn't it? Is that, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So it goes from the custom-made, like actually rabbit-proof netting, which is like 30 mil. Is that 1.4 gauge? <laughs> 1.4 mil gauge fencing. We're talking fences <laughs> over here. Oh, that's what we use. That's what yeah, we use. Well, it's, so it's the 30 mil like mesh netting. Yeah. And then that goes up, yeah, around 90 centimetres from the ground. Yeah. And then it goes into the wider 50 mil Okay. Yeah. And they so sneak out of there. They can sneak but a rabbit kitten can't get in the bottom. Correct. The, yeah, gotcha. yeah, correct. Okay. So if you bought sort of off-the-shelf rabbit-proof netting, which is most commonly 40 mil, a rabbit kitten that is independent can actually squeeze through there. It's a little bit more expensive to do the custom, but it does the job. And, Helen, do you have a favourite animal? Um, look, in general, No. Um, it really depends okay. on. <laughs> really? Right. Leave it, Adrian. She's okay. going to get to pythons in a second. No, Someone better I say don't... a reptile. <laughs> I know. Um, Eastern Brown State. No. Um, no, look, in general, it's really. Uh, so when I was in the field a lot more, it was the survey that I was working on. You know, I'd get really excited by Western pygmy possums or common dunnarts or betongs or whatever it might be or um, bandy bandies. Um, blind snakes. Uh, I I can't choose a favourite, but I do have to say that whenever I see a numbat, there is this moment of just, oh my gosh, that's a numbat. I don't think you know there is something very unique about a numbat. Um, yeah, squirrel-like meerkat things. They're, so They're funny. just amazing yeah. and so and you see during the day, which is. That was very um, user-friendly. So. Yeah. <laughs> Ali, yeah. Ali, do you feel bad now because you chose your favourite really easily? <laughs> <laughs> but Helen Should said that said basically all. all of them are her favourite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> Sorry. It's hard. We, we actually do get asked that a fair bit. Um, yeah. And we, there have been times where I've had to choose an animal, so I have had to say a number. Mm-hmm. It's all of them. So your logo, AWC's logo, is a bilby. It is. Another awesome animal. It is. It? Yeah. This is actually a lesser bilby. So they <gasps> is that right? Yeah. I so love the lesser bilby. two species of bilby, the lesser and the greater. So what we see today, for those that are lucky enough to see bilbies today, they are the greater bilby. Our logo is the lesser bilby. And wow. the lesser bilby is one of many species of Australian animals that have gone extinct. Um, and it says a reminder to us as to why we're doing it and we want to really reduce the risk of mammal extinctions in the future and 
by calling them something better than lesser. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> when you read about them, they're really cool. Like they, they would put like they were saying they put native mice, which is obviously a donut or something, in the cage trap with them or something, and they just devour them. Mm-hmm. People have got really nasty lacerations from trying to handle. They sound like, and they're not as pretty. They sound like the meth version of a greater building, <laughs> but they do yes. need a better name. Yes, they do need a better name. They do. That's so funny. Actually, do you know John Gisham? He used to work at Yukamara many, many years ago. Seen the name, yeah. He, he, he was the president of Birds SA, oh, yes. um, yeah. and he was—I think he's, he was senior ranger at the Kurong district when, he, when we had him on the show. Still is, still is. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. A friend, a friend of ours, been on the show. I used to work with him many years ago. Um, when he was at Yukamara, he said the bilbies used to come into one of the sheds and jack the mice. Used to eat the mice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. It's pretty. So, neat, anyone with yeah. a mouse problem? Yeah, bilbies. That's <laughs> right. Bilby. And that's why they do this, folks, to control mice. That's, <laughs> that's right. Bilby mouse problem and a number three atomic problem. <laughs> 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 there you go. Yeah. Um, Steve, do you have a favourite animal? Just feel bad asking everybody else. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, obviously, it's a python. I have a favourite. Oh, hang on, we, hang on, hang on. Are are we we yeah, well, that's my world. Uh, my favourite animal in the world is an orangutan. Yeah, them and. Because we're the common ape, that's what I call humans, the common ape, because we found in every city in the world. Common apes and orangutans, and the three species of orangutan, are the only primates living today that have come out of Africa. There's my random fact that I got from my book, mm-hmm. Leif Cox's book, who's coming on the show. Mm. Go on, Steve, answer, you, answer my question. Sorry. I can't be bothered now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's most reptiles, but orangutan's my favourite worldwide animal. And do you know, wombats are still up there. Mm-hmm. I love wombats, despite that snuffles bruised half of my body with one bite. Mm. Um, They are probably still my favourite Australian animal. Yeah. Yeah, Cool dudes. So you you got wombats on the outside of the fence, but not the inside. Is that because they'll go outside through the fence and let everything else out? Yeah. So when... (laughs) Yeah. Destructive. Um, So destructive. And... um, well, yeah, so when the when Yukamara's fence was first built back in 1990, they had big issues with wombats trying to get in and out. And, um, you know, so now that the fence has been there for 30-plus years, it's um, things have settled. Um, there were a couple of sort of hand-raised wombats that were actually released into Yukamara back in the 1990s. And they get, as you guys know, um, they get very territorial. So there were two wombats. One was called Wilma and one was called Tina. So Tina the Terrible. And because she'd just, you know, bulldoze anyone that came near her. When we came to Yukamara, she was a fair bit older, so she was pretty placid. Wilma was the one that we needed to watch out for. And Wilma used to hang around um, what we call the sinkhole area and also the muck-up yard, which are areas where we – the muck-up yard is where we would take people on um, – the walks, like when school groups would come and visit, and sometimes, like, I'd have to take out a rake just to make sure that there was something between me and Wilma and the group. Um, before my time, so when Noel was there, Wilma a- attacked people. She, she was pretty horrible. Um, but, again, as she got older, it was much nicer to see her. And, yeah, but... See, numbers never do that, do they? <laughs> you would never get a number. No, they might think it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, no, no, not a species that works well inside a fenced area. But yeah, outside the fence, um, yeah, we've got we're a really important stronghold for the stronghold for the southern hairy nosed wombat in the area. We've got over two thousand um, wombats at Yukamara. Yep. Wow, that's yeah. a lot. 
Mm. Yeah. For, for what, 4,000 hectares outside? Yeah. yeah. Any orangutans? No. We haven't done an orangutan no. survey, so. Oh. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> no. That's, that's one species. No. There's no little pockets, no little secret pockets around. Yeah. Well, Steve took me down the Kilimanjangan River and we found in Borneo, we found wild Borneoan orangutans, the pygmy, mm. the pygmy ones. And they live up in trees and they, got, they make nests in trees. It's amazing, aren't they? So yeah, cool. like an emu. Yeah, right. Not like, like, sorry, not like this. <laughs> but, they, but they actually do. Isn't that weird? Wow. Where a bird won't. <laughs> okay. I had, I had breakfast that, yeah. with an orangutan once. Did you? At Singapore Zoo. <laughs> it was amazing. I thought you were going to say his name was Tyson. No. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been together no. for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was at the uh, Singapore Zoo. We shared fruit. Oh. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah, nice. Oh, yeah. Mm. Never been into other primates myself. Mm. But yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> Judge me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to date someone, it would definitely be a primate. How about that? Okay. There you go. So they're okay. Yeah. So there's someone out there listening and they're looking for a change of career or they want to change their course that they're doing. Um, you know, they want to get into something to help the environment. What, what might you say? Your first step will be um, a degree in biology, but you certainly don't need a degree to get into the conservation game. There's uh, there's plenty of um, volunteer opportunities. Um, if you if you look around just on Facebook, you can usually find a group um, that will publish any opportunities in the area. AWC, if you go on our website, you can sign up to be on our volunteer list. So if um, a sanctuary in your area or in your state is looking for volunteers. Um, that's how we that's how we get all our volunteers. Um, that's how we meet very interesting people. Um, and there's even things that you can do without being part of a, um, a, a volunteer um, organization. You can um, if you if you look up conservation uh, citizen science projects in your area, there's always something going on. And there's um, apps that you can use to log any sightings that you see. So iNaturalist is a great one. If anyone's listening, download it. So it's like Pokemon Go except for real animals. So you can log all the species that you see and try to collect them all, and um, and that's a, that's people use that. Uh, there's a there's a um, guy at my um, uni uh, who's doing a PhD basically with um, iNaturalist data, um, and there's there's bird apps that do the same thing. So anyone can get involved and really um, improve their identification skills, um, figure out what they're interested in, um, and get involved in any projects that are nearby to get the really important skills that will make them very marketable if they're trying to get a career in conservation ecology. Volunteering is so important. Oh, yeah. and, and work hard, even though you're volunteering. Oh, like yeah. Some people do have the money aspect of volunteering, but just get it. If it's something you really want to do, volunteer and work hard at volunteering. And you, and you stand such a bigger chance of actually getting yeah. what you want. And be, be annoying about it. Be mm. one of those volunteers, like you do the work, but then like I, you know, I volunteered for you. Now you owe me. Mm. Walk. We're going to look at birds, and you're going to tell me every species of tree we see. Yep. Being, yeah, yeah. Learn really everything you can while you're volunteering. Sponge yeah. it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Absolutely. That's my biggest um, advice as well is volunteer. Um, yeah, because also because as Ali said, there's so many different aspects and avenues that you can go into. Um, you know, volunteering is such a great way to figure out what you like, and also most importantly, what you don't like. You know. What we've been talking about probably sounds pretty sexy and romantic and adventurous, but at times it's, it's just bloody hard work. You know, Ali's just come off eight nights of possum surveys. 
where she's been awake pretty much for all of the night counting possums in the in the spotlight beams. Um, again, next week, Ali starts uh, a four-night betong survey. So, you know, what we do is it is hard work. It isn't for everybody. We're out in the elements. We're tired. <laughs> we're dirty. We're sweaty. Um, and so that's okay, though. That isn't for everybody. But as Ali said, there's so many other opportunities that might be for you but still within our conservation sector. Um, another bit of advice I would give to people is just to persevere. There aren't a lot of jobs available. Um, funding is very hard to come by for anything to do with the environment, as we've all probably seen and, and experienced. Um, so you're going to get lots of knockbacks. There's going to be a lot of people applying for the same job that you are applying for if you're at that point. As Steve said, that's where volunteering can really um, set you apart from the, the, the crowd. Um, we get quite a lot of applications where students have done their undergrad degree, they've gone on the university organised field trips and that's it. They don't stick out from the crowd. What sticks out is then that student that has gone the extra mile to get um, other experiences. It doesn't have to be related to what they're applying for, but it shows they've got initiative, it shows they're keen, it shows they're passionate, it shows they're willing to work for not much or no money. <laughs> um, you don't do this career for the money, you do it for the passion and the love and to meet great people. Um, so certainly that does help you stick out from the crowd and make sure those volunteering experiences give you worthwhile skills. There's a lot of volunteering out there, which, you know, there is an element of um, monotony that we do. You know, we all have to clean the odd toilet or enter data or do those monotonous jobs, but you want to volunteer where you're going to get really, um, you know, really up your skills and make you that sort of uh, employable person. So I think they're thing, but the perseverance is the big thing because when you get knocked back after knocked back, and I think we've all been there, um, it gets pretty disheartening. But if you love it, just keep going for it. Great advice, um, both of you. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you for what you do. Not just coming on the show, but thank you for what you do because I know your heart, both of you guys, your heart's clearly in it and super important. And that's another thing too, isn't it? Like you can you can really want to do this work on, in theory, but you got to be cut out for it. You've got to really want it. And that stands out too, doesn't it? You can't really invent that. No, you? and you can't, as a, a person that might manage a person like that or um, supervise an intern, um, if they're not passionate about it, you, you can teach people all the other stuff. You know, we can teach people how to survey, handle animals, do data analysis, all that stuff. But you can't teach someone to be passionate and, you know, have their heart in it when things are going pretty tough. So... That's an innate thing. So everyone has something that, you know, gives them that spark. you just got to figure out what it is. And as I you said... You it was Michael Archer. Exactly. <laughs> you know, no, no, but that's that's exactly it, you know. So, but if, if that's not, if that field work thing isn't for you, that's okay. There's other things you can do. Yeah. Thank you, Helen. And Ali, thank you. Thanks for having Awesome. Us. Thank you, and, guys. And we'll put the website for... AWC on our website. Thank you very much for coming on, guys. Thank you for listening.